Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 91. I'm Steve Kwan. And I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. Flying solo again here today. Not without Matt. Matt's here. But without my family. They all abandoned me once again. Yeah, I was like, what? I'm here, motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on the bright side, it makes it easier to get recording done. My wife took the daughter off to go visit my mother-in-law. So as a result, got the house all to myself. It's funny because like on one hand, you know, I'm lonely, but on the other hand, it's kind of cool because I can go back to living like a lazy bachelor like I used to back when I was 20. You know, I can just if I don't want to do the laundry, I can just wait a day. No one's going to like freak out. If I don't want to clean the floor, I can just do it tomorrow. No one's going to freak out. So basically, I've like regressed to a 20 year old loser once again. God, that's got to be so awesome. (laughs) Kind of is. Sounds amazing. (laughs) I just sat around today. And I just did whatever I wanted. Like I didn't have to go anywhere. I didn't have to do anything. I had no chores. I just kind of sat there and did nothing. And it's like, on one hand, it kind of sucks because you know you're not being productive. Like you're just sitting around basically wasting time. But on the other hand, and you can relate to this, Matt, I'm sure. But as a parent, sometimes it's nice to just have a break where like you don't have to. It's not even about going off and doing things that are fun or doing hobbies. It's about sitting there and you don't have to do anything. Like you can just sit there and stare at the wall for two hours if you want to. And it's totally fine. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of a nice break. You were basically Peter from office space. I would just <laughs> yeah. do nothing. Yeah. Well, let's do something productive here. we got an episode to talk about. Man, we're getting really close to 100 episodes. Matt and I have been trying to line up a whole bunch of guests over the next while. You know, the podcast is grown quite a bit in profile and now people want to be on here, which is awesome. But I'm trying to figure out should we do anything special for episode 100? You have any bright ideas on that, Matt? Uh, we could not fold the stupid podcast. That could be a good <laughs> <Yeah>. celebration. <laughs> Let's just keep it going. We still provide you this free service that after actually after 100 episodes, that's pretty impressive. So I mean, most podcasts kind of peter out after a few episodes. So if we have one thing, it is staying power. Yeah, but our good fans don't get it for free. Thank you to our patrons and everyone who supports us. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Those of you who support us financially, you're the ones who have allowed this thing to keep going as long as it has. And the rest of you can basically go screw yourselves as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) We don't really care about the rest of you. If you just freeload, then fuck you. But I hope your jujitsu gets better. (laughs) You know, one thing I, I do find interesting is the weird, like, demanding messages I get every once in a while from people who don't pay us. Have, have you ever got any, any of those to your social, Matt? Because mm. I get these a lot where people message us out of the blue and they've never paid us or anything, but they want something like they want us to 
promote their product or promote their podcast or have them on the show and do an episode with them so they can sell whatever product they're trying to sell. And it's like, guy, <laughs> you know, we, yeah. there are a lot of people who listen to this and try to get value out of it. I'm not, I'm not going to like commandeer the podcast to hawk your product when you give nothing to us in return. It's kind of a weird thing, but, but we will, we will commandeer it to bitch about it though. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We will waste everyone's time to complain about this, <laughs> but yeah, we're not going to do the ad. Instead, we'll just bitch about how this guy wanted us to do the ad for free without giving us any. <laughs> anything it takes the exact same amount of time but uh, yeah. <laughs> well at least we waste time on our terms then but maybe we can have a productive conversation here so maybe there's a mental model here <laughs> yeah what's the mental model <laughs> so something that has come up and kind of evolved in our database over the years since we started this we've got a mental model in our database called single versus double lever control and basically what it talks about is the pros and cons of trying to manage one lever versus trying to manage two levers at the same time. Now, way back in the day, my thinking used to be that you would be best off isolating a single lever, meaning basically trying to use one lever at a time to gain overwhelming force against that lever, particularly when you're trying to submit. But my thinking on this, and I know, Matt, your thinking has already been like this, but my thinking on this has kind of evolved over the years now where I understand that there is a time and a place for attacking one lever at once versus attacking two levers at the same time. Now, often this conversation comes up when you're talking about applying a submission, because usually that's when this kind of thing really is top of mind. But it's also important when it comes to how you control and set up submissions or even just how you control your opponent in general. You always have this situation where you have to decide Do I try to put all of my power behind one of my opponent's levers? Like, do I put everything I've got against one of his legs or against his arm? Or do I try to split it up? Do I try to control, for example, his head and his arm at the same time? Or rather than controlling one leg, do I try to control two legs at the same time? There's a place for each. There's pros and cons for each. Matt, what are your opening thoughts here on this one? Yeah, and it's important to to distinguish also we basically just you know label the head as a lever we treat it like it's another limb basically because it is the end of the spine on on one end of the spine then the other end of the spine is the tailbone so we kind of refer to the head as the you know it's the end of the longest lever generally speaking when controlling you know when you have two limbs controlled you gain a lot more control there's a lot more you know rotational control usually it takes your opponent out of base a lot of the time because they're missing two of their posts to build base. So it's a really good way to disrupt rotation and also prevent your opponent from getting into base. Whereas two-on-one controls generally are really good for actually breaking and finishing submissions. So, you know, you could use an arm bar specifically and say, when you have double trouble or you have the far arm as well, you know, it, it basically puts your opponent into a, a straight jacket position of sorts where they can't easily turn left and right because their elbows have been pulled off the mat and then reinforced wedges on both sides with your legs. But when it comes time to actually finish the arm bar, most of the time you're going to just have two hands dedicated to one arm. There are exceptions, for example, in the spider web position, you know, you can do the arm bar while hooking the near leg. Although generally speaking, I think most people will probably take a two on one on the hand. And again, when you hook the arm bar coupled with the leg, it basically takes your opponent out of base on that leg. So 
when when we're looking to prevent movement and trying to prevent our opponent from building base, grabbing the secondary lever is really good. Another example would be, you know, if you get into the insides in Kaku and then you're looking to control your opponent while you're sort of waiting to separate their legs and dig on a heel hook, it's really important to control the free leg because that secondary leg uh, is basically what prevents your opponent from spinning out a lot of the time, pulling out their knee line and hiding their heel. You know, if you control that secondary le- uh, leg, one of the great things, not only does it control rotational escapes, but it actually prevents your opponent from hiding the heel. So you can gain heel exposure from controlling the secondary leg as well. Yeah, really, really, really great opening salvo there. Something that I used to think, I mean, being generally the smaller, weaker guy is that I'm better off just putting all of my eggs in one basket. I'm better off just going for maximum power if I want to break something or even if just if I want to control my opponent. So, you know, I've always kind of preferred techniques like single leg X guard, for example, where you're basically using all of your body, generally speaking, against one of your opponent's levers. And the thing is, if you're going up a weight class and you're trying to fight someone bigger, then you will probably find a lot more success putting all of your power against one lever if you want to make your opponent budge. Like, for example, let's talk about some double lever techniques. Probably a very easy to understand example. Let's look at the single leg takedown versus the double leg takedown, right? With the single leg takedown, you can put all of your power and your effort behind an attack on one lever. And as a result, I mean, I don't know if everyone agrees with this, but I have found that the single leg takedown scales up weight classes very well. Like if I'm fighting someone 100 pounds bigger than me, if I'm going to get a takedown on them, it's probably going to be something like a single leg takedown. On the other hand, you've got things like the double leg takedown, where you're attacking two levers at the same time. Now, double legs are super effective. They have the benefit of not only allowing you to use one leg to push your opponent off balance, but you can also stop the other leg so that your opponent can't base. And as a result, double legs are awesome. But the reality is double legs are very, very hard to do when you're fighting a much bigger opponent. It's just hard to split your power across two different targets. Whereas if you focus on one lever, you can really maximize power. So as a smaller guy, I always used to love these attacks where you focus all of your power on one single lever. So I'd go for a lot of things like, you know, arm bars, ankle locks, guillotines, rear naked chokes. I would avoid the kind of attacks where you have to try to control two levers at once because I found those didn't scale up so well, at least in terms of submissions anyway, against bigger opponents. But I've sort of changed my thinking on this a little bit now. I mean, I do think that it's very, very hard to finish a two-lever submission against a bigger opponent, but it's still very, very effective to use two-lever attacks on a bigger opponent to control them. So digging a little bit deeper into what I'm talking about here, like envision an armbar or envision a guillotine choke. You're basically attacking one thing effectively. I mean, yes, there's a little bit more detail there, right? Like you're using double trouble, for example, in the case of the arm bar to control the far arm. So it's not as simple as you're just attacking one lever. But generally speaking, the idea behind the arm bar is you're putting all of your power against a single lever. And similarly with a guillotine, Yeah, you're using the rest of your body to latch onto your opponent and get leverage, but ultimately you're just attacking their head in terms of finishing power. Now, you compare that to something like a triangle choke, for example. I would consider a triangle choke to be a double lever attack because the submission is being applied to both their head and one of their arms. 
And if you've got big, long, powerful legs, then maybe you can make that work effectively. But generally speaking, if you're a lot smaller than your opponent, it's going to be hard to do that. And the reason why is because you can't really isolate one lever from your opponent and pull it free and do maximal damage. You're attacking the head and the arm at the same time. And that means that it's going to be less damaging when you put your force down against your opponent. It also means that things like body dimensions come into play. So, you know, if I want to wrap my arms around your neck, you're going to have to have a pretty huge neck before that becomes impossible. But it is very likely that there will be some people that I simply cannot triangle due to just body dimensions, right? If you are fighting someone who is much, much bigger than you, or if you have particularly short legs, you might have trouble getting that leverage. So it's very much a consideration. And what I have found as a general rule is if I'm really concerned about a size disadvantage, then I generally want to prioritize single lever attacks, whereas if the size scale is a little bit more comparable and I'm roughly the same size as my opponent, then double lever attacks become much more viable. And Matt, I'd be curious to know your thoughts on that. Very good points. When it comes to things like triangles, uh, I definitely agree that you don't want to be, at least I don't want to be going against someone who's like 80, 100 pounds bigger than me and in my closed guard getting triangled. It's just It's not really a great recipe for success. There's a lot that can go wrong there just because of the difference in size. Just like when you talked about comparing single legs to double legs, a great thing about the single leg is it's pretty non-committal. So you can just scoop it from a standing position. If you just redirect their arm, you can just often scoop a single. Whereas a double, you really got to commit to driving in. You kind of have to use more athleticism, a lot more explosiveness. It's a It's a move where if it fails, your opponent is now sprawling on top of you and far worse consequences if they're pushing 80 pounds bigger than you for sure. So I I will say I agree with you there, but let's say the rear triangle, for example. So I do like if I have a, you know, like a rear crucifix with a Kimura control or something, and then I can catch their head and arm inside of a rear triangle just because they can't stack me from that position. I find that having that dominant angle behind my opponent allows for the head and arm to be easier. And, you know, you mentioned the guillotine as an example being a, you know, a single lever submission, which yes, it is with the arm out. And I used to favor the arm out because I thought, oh, well, you know, I can apply more force to the head. But nowadays I find, and even especially against bigger opponents, when you try and guillotine a really big person, quite often if they're strong and they're aware of alignment, they can posture out and their head pops out. But if you have the head and arm, I find it actually much more difficult for your opponent to escape. And because you have the arm inside, I find you can sort of deal with the spin out escape a lot more as well. So you have that rotational control because you have two levers instead of one. And then from there, instead of thinking about like, oh, what's my percentage of actually finishing this submission? I think about using the submission as a position to sort of funnel my opponent either into a sweep or maybe I get into top mount, maybe I can finish from top mount, but it's more, it's looked at more as a holistic system rather than just a move. So I feel like if I have my opponent's head and arm and they're much bigger than me, then I'll be able to like, you know, if they they get on top and I feel like I'm losing the position, I might be able to sweep them over with a sumi and get back on top and then uh, salvage the position in some sort of way. So long story short, I agree. If you, if you have to apply maximal force to apply a break to a single limb, 
I think it's best to use both your arms to dominate that lever, but also your legs. So it's really going to be like a four on one situation, you know, take it like an inside heel hook, for example. Uh, but there, of course, there's exceptions to every rule. But as a general rule, I think controlling two levers is better for control. And I find braking is better if you're just controlling one lever. Fantastic explanation. So this is exactly the realization I eventually came to, which is, you know, when you want to get a submission and of course, through most of our jujitsu journey, we're very, very focused on submissions. Yeah, you're going to get more power if you attack a single lever. And I think I was overcompensating in that direction for a long time. But as I got to black belt, I started to realize the power of control and understanding that I would rather hold control over my opponent for an indefinite period of time versus being able to get breaking power at any one moment and possibly get the submission. I would prefer control. And so I was looking at these double lever attacks and thinking to myself, man, I don't want to use these because I'm just not getting enough power. But what I understand now is that double lever attacks are a trade-off. Yes, you might be losing power, but you're gaining control. And what you gave there with the guillotine is a fantastic example. So with the guillotine, if you're attacking just the head-only guillotine, you have a tremendous amount of power because your entire body is generating leverage against your opponent's neck. That is not a good deal for him. But it's also possible for your opponent to do some pretty dynamic escapes. And the same applies for an armbar, right? If your opponent can rotate their body, then there's a lot of escapes available. An example would be if you're going for an armbar and your opponent does a hitchhiker escape, that's a rotation. Or if you're going for a straight ankle lock and your opponent rolls, that's a rotation. And you talked about the importance of rotational control. And a mistake that I was making was I would be so focused on a single lever attack that I would not worry about my opponent rotating. And a lot of the time they would just rotate out and then I would have lost the whole position. So I understand now that it's a constant trade-off. And in the middle of the battle, you've got to always be asking yourself that question. What do I need more right now? Do I need power or do I need control? And if you need power, then your focus is probably going to be on isolating a single lever. But if you need control, then your focus should maybe be on controlling two levers at once. And again, back to the guillotine, one of the great things about the guillotine is if I want to do a head and arm guillotine on someone, yeah, it's a lot easier if you're strong and if you've got long arms. But the thing is, even if I'm not that strong or my arms are not that long, by securing the head and arm guillotine, I can still control you. I might not be able to finish you effectively because I lack the power but I can control you and I can use that control to prevent your guard pass, to sweep you, to get a better position. And then as I advance and I really break your alignment later, I can start worrying about maybe going back to a single lever attack. But that's a really good point that you brought up about position versus submission, which is that, you know, sometimes you want to play these submissions as a position just because you've got a head and arm guillotine on someone or the back rear triangle. That doesn't mean you need to finish them from there. You can use that as a tremendously powerful control position to further break their alignment and then maybe set up a submission that will work better down the road. Yeah, one of the one of the biggest things that, well, I mean, you know, Danaher's done so much for jiu-jitsu, but one of the biggest concepts specifically to leg locking is the idea of double trouble and kind of what separated their system from most leg locking systems 
just when it was becoming popular, like around maybe seven years ago or six years ago, when you started seeing like Eddie Cummings and Gary Tonin and even Gordon Ryan eventually, you know, hitting these awesome leg locks in competition, a big part of it was the focus on the double trouble. And, you know, that that was a really big defining moment in leg locking because that's when we started to look at leg locking as a system of control leading to submission, not just submissions on their own. And even, you know, even when I started learning leg locks, I found myself trying to get digs as soon as I got into positions. And what would happen is by the time I'd start to go for my dig, my opponent would already be hiding their heel. They'd be, you know, spinning out. If they're any good, they'd be uh, hiding their heel and, and beginning their escape. And they would see it coming as I'm digging. And so what happens is because all of my limbs are dedicated to controlling and digging and finishing the heel uh, on the one leg, a lot of the time, if they were any good, they would escape. And that's because I wasn't looking at it as a, you know, as a system that requires control. And then once we started really adding the double trouble concepts and controlling the the secondary leg, you realize that your opponent's basically cornered at this point. And, um, you know, it's a bit of a process. You get the position, you get the double trouble, then you got to separate the legs and that way you can start looking for an inside heel hook. And then from there, you got your digging mechanics and your breaking mechanics. So it's, it is, there is a sequence there, but just trying to catch a heel hook as soon as you isolate a single leg isn't necessarily a smart strategy against a good opponent because uh, good leg lockers understand good defense. So it really does come down to like how sophisticated are your wedging mechanics? And when you, you know, how do you like to split the legs? How do you like to expose the heel? You know, what varieties of grips and digs do you like to do? And then, of course, the finishing mechanics related to the position that you find yourself in. So these are all these are all factors that go into it. But really trying to use a use submissions as a system, you know, by controlling the secondary leg, that was that was a big defining moment in leg locking. And when you do control the secondary leg, like I mentioned earlier, it really can prevent your opponent from spinning. And therefore, it kind of it kind of maintains uh, heel exposure. So if you can control the secondary leg, a lot of the time it can sort of extend your your um, your window of opportunity to expose the heel and dig before they can escape. Yeah, that's a really, really fantastic example. The whole evolution of the leg lock game. Now, for less experienced listeners, this may be a history lesson to you. But Matt, I remember when you and I were starting out, you know, the common knowledge around leg locks we were just starting to get past this whole thing about how leg locks are dirty. And now people had accepted the leg locks work, but people were saying, oh yeah, well, you know, the leg lock might work, but it's not a good strategy because you've got to abandon position to go for a leg lock. And the weakness in the thinking at the time was that you would be maybe on top position and you would sit back for a leg lock and basically be totally throwing away the whole position so that you could go for an ankle lock or a heel hook. And the idea was, oh, well, you know, if you fail, then your opponent's going to get on top and you're going to have lost the whole thing. So not a good strategy. But really the defining thing that has changed in the last decade or so as the leg lock game has evolved, like Matt said, is that leg locks have really evolved into a system. It's not just a handful of submissions that you go for. It's a whole series of positions, very much similar to the traditional positions in jiu-jitsu, like guard, side control, mount, back mount. There's a whole series of positions within the leg lock game. And the development of those positions is what led people to the realization that 
When you go for a leg lock, it does not mean that you have to give up position. It's not just as simple as, oh, you fall back and you either get the submission or you don't. There's a whole series of positions there that are very, very powerful, and you can get into those, attempt your finish, and still control even if you don't get the finish. And that's where concepts like double trouble come into play, basically the idea that while you're attacking one lever, you also want to have some control over the opposite lever. So if I'm attacking your left foot, then I want to control your right foot as well. And the reason why is because even though my current objective is not to break that other foot, by controlling it, I can lock your hips in place and prevent you from rolling. And rolling is where a lot of dynamic movement is created that can let you escape those submissions. And that's not just restricted to the leg lock game. It's the same with the upper body as well. If you're attacking one arm, it's very important to consider how am I controlling the other arm? <laughs> because if you're not also immobilizing the other arm, then your opponent can do dynamic rotating escapes. So an example is if I'm arm barring you and I fail to control your far shoulder with wedges, you can do the hitchhiker escape. Or if I'm trying to do a Kimura on you and I'm failing to put something against your far shoulder, you can just roll endlessly until I'm finally able to block that roll by putting something against that shoulder. So very important consideration. And this kind of comes back to single versus double lever control. There's a time and a place for putting all your power behind one single target. But it's also important to understand when control needs to be the priority. Very well put, because um, I think that's one of the biggest mistakes of intermediary players. And that's that they, you know, they they don't really know the difference between when to go for the submission and when to just control and transition. And when a position is starting to fail, a lot of the time they'll just hold on to that position rather than, uh, you know, move to something better and essentially just jump system to system. Lots to unpack there. Uh, you know, you know, when you're, when you're talking about like, uh, take the arm bar, for example, um, if you were to try and, you know, break someone's grip and you're, you have them in the spider web position and they're clasping their hands together, a lot of the time, you know, one of the best ways you can break that grip is with a Kimura control. So like a, a two on one, you can use the rotation of the shoulder to break the grip, but then you give up a lot of the time some a degree of control on the far arm you know you have to you have to count on your legs being really good wedges to control the far arm as long as you understand those wedges and you can control the far arm you kind of do still have double trouble i guess even though you have all your uh, you do have both hands dedicated to the arm you're attacking but um Kimura control is one of those positions where you know, you can use it to break grips. I use it a lot of the time to transition from arm bars into reverse triangles. Uh, and again, one of the reasons why I do that is because once you get that position, if you get that head and head trapped in there as well as the arm, again, then that solves a lot of like the, you know, the, the hitchhiker escape type movements. It really cuts down the, your opponent's ability to be explosive and athletic because you're putting a wedge behind their head. And then of course you can always transition back to the arm bar. So going, going to the arm bar and just trying to rip the arm straight back is not necessarily a good strategy, but using a two-on-one like a Kimura can be excellent control. And I find even if I have uh, the Kimura in a T position, if I, if you do it properly, it is enough control to have complete rotational dominance over your opponent, but throwing that foot over the far shoulder and trapping them inside like a crucifix position never hurts to get even more control. So a lot of the time, that's why I use, if I just isolate a single lever and say a Kimura control, I use that 
as my main, you know, critical control point to transition to rear triangles and all to all types of things like that. Yeah. And keep in mind, you know, we can also discuss when we're talking about two on one uh, wedges for control, say I have you in an arm bar or whatever, you know, you could also talk about the, the lower half of the body. So if I have you in a 411 and let's say, you know, I have your leg entangled and only one of my legs is really being applied as a wedge. So I might have like my leg, let's say I have you in the saddle. One of my legs is reaping you. That's the, that's the wedge on top. But if my bottom wedge is just dead, like if I'm not engaging my bottom leg, then a lot of the time it's very easy for your opponent to extract their knee line, even with double trouble. It's really important that you have opposing wedges in opposite directions when you're doing, when you're in position like the saddle and even like an arm bar, you know, you want to cross your ankles if you're in the spider web. Well, you don't have to, but I like to, and then pull your heels into your butt. So, you know, making sure that all your wedges are engaged properly. Uh, it, an example would be like having a Kimura where you have the wrist control, but you're not opening the elbow. You know, you just don't have that opposing wedge uh, in opposite directions that really creates the rotation that you're looking for on the limb. And then if you don't do that, a lot of time you're going to get spin outs. You're going to get them. Uh, you're going to lose the the distance and they're going to escape uh, and make space. So wedges coupled with double trouble, I find are the, that's the best control schemes that you can have. And then when it's time to hunt the submission, that's when you're going to be able to switch to a two-on-one on that limb. But again, every time you transition from double trouble to two-on-one, then you're going to have that degree of, you know, losing some form of control, but you'll gain more strength over the lever you're attacking. It is a trade-off. Yeah. There's that window of opportunity when you're switching from double lever control to single lever control. There's that window of opportunity where you're giving up that control to put all of your power against one attack. And if you screw that up, your opponent is going to use that to escape. And what you're describing here is something that really resonated with me. And it was a big learning lesson for me, uh, actually quite recently. I never used to be good at arm bars. I used to think they just weren't my thing. And the reason why now I understand why I wasn't good at them was because I was focusing on just attacking a single lever. I was not doing the proper setup to control my opponent. So if I was mounted on someone, I would make the mistake of trying to grab the one arm, pull it free, and then sit back and put my power behind it. And my opponent would hitchhiker or bridge up or they'd get out somehow. And the the breakthrough moment for me was realizing don't sit back and try to armbar the guy from the top until you have the far arm controlled. It's not so much about the arm that you're grabbing that you want to break. It's about wedging behind the far arm, either crossing your ankles behind it or reaching over and pulling that far arm towards you. It is the control of the far arm that renders the near arm vulnerable towards you. If you just focus all of your effort on the near arm and you're not controlling the far one, then they very likely will get out. And an example of this that also is similar to that is when you sit back for an ankle lock or something. If you just are standing in someone's guard and you sit back to get that ankle lock and you just go from standing position to single lever control to try and finish, your opponent is probably going to either stand up or they're going to rotate out and it's just not going to work. And the realization that I needed to advance through this sequence where I control both legs and then eventually as I'm able to dominate the position, I switch towards putting all of my power behind a single lever. That was a really, really big moment for me in terms of figuring out how to actually safely get these submissions without losing the position. 
And similarly, if you're on the receiving end of one of these, so if someone is trying to armbar you, for example, or they're trying to leg lock you, one of the things you really need to understand to prevent that is it's not so much about the arm they're attacking or the leg that they're attacking. It's about the other arm or the other leg. So if Matt's trying to armbar me, it would be foolhardy for me to try to just muscle that arm free or pull that arm out. It is my ability to prevent him from restricting movement on my other arm, the far arm that I need to focus on. Because if he's able to wedge behind my far arm, then he's going to armbar me. But if I can prevent that, then I still have motion and I can move my body to take the pressure off. Same with footlocks, right? If I can prevent him from controlling my far leg, then it's much harder for him to finish just by attacking the one leg in his possession. Yeah, as as I get older, I realize, I don't know if it's because I, uh, my body's breaking down or if I'm literally just not as tenacious as I used to be, but my game has definitely gravitated towards more of like negating movement rather than allowing movement. You know, back when I was like blue, purple, even brown belt, my game was very much like, around allowing movement to happen and just beating my opponent to the sequence anyways. But only at black belt have I really thought about how I'm actually immobilizing my opponent in top pins and like essentially taking a more traditional approach to jujitsu where it's just like chest to chest, it's heavy pressure, pinning and, and, you know, less inverting, less dynamic movement, more just like slowing it down. And, uh, I realize that it's a lot more efficient when you're going for submissions to be able to use them as positions and and use them as controlling mechanisms and just transition system to system and uh, and keep cornering your opponent as opposed to like diving on an ankle lock or, you know, go, going for like a crazy inversion into a submission that's, you know, where you didn't really immobilize your opponent. You just kind of caught them by surprise. So now my game is definitely simplified a lot and I have a new appreciation for simple traditional jujitsu, but definitely I think a lot of it is because I'm lazy and I'm going against these guys, these younger guys now that are like really explosive. I'm like, I don't really want to work as hard. So if I get a position or sorry, if I get a submission, I'm going to try to, you know, use it as a whole system, use it as for a control system, not just go for the finish every time, you know? And I think a, you were mentioning the example of standing in your opponent's open guard and then dropping back on an ankle lock. That scenario, like it does exist in jujitsu. I guess it really depends on the rules though, because if we're, if we're talking about IBJJF setting, it is not a smart strategy really, unless you, you are going for a complete hail Mary. There's 15 seconds left on the clock and you're down on points. Fine. I can understand that. Or if it's a fight to win the, the new, not new, but it's the event that uh, Seth Daniels puts on. It's like a sub only event where you are awarded for submission attempts. So if you're awarded for submission attempts instead of positions, it makes total sense to drop back on an ankle lock. It fails, come back up on top, you know, drop back for an ankle lock. It fails, come back on top. At least you're looking active. You're scoring with the judges and you are winning just because the win conditions are different. But if it's a IBJJF situation and you are tied with your opponent and there's one minute left and you drop back on an ankle lock, you know, that's not a smart strategy because now if they come up and they escape the ankle lock or whatever, which basically means they stand up, um, you get you may get an advantage and they're going to get their two points. So it's it's not really smart to do that unless you're getting awarded submission attempts. I think where real like excellent leg locking comes into play 
where it actually goes far beyond the actual finishing of leg locks, but the, but the holistic strategy surrounding leg locks and using them to get to other positions is kind of what you want to develop, I think, as a leg locker. Because, And I didn't see this until you know maybe a year ago when I would go for a leg lock, you know, I'd get a great position. I'd go for my dig, my opponent would stand up or whatever, they'd get into base. And then I'm so married to trying to finish the leg lock that uh, my opponent essentially slips out. And if I'm not careful, they're able to possibly take my back or possibly counter me and, and get into a better position than me because I was focused on trying to finish when really what I should have done is abandon the situation a few steps ago when I realized I'm not going to get this and then use the failed leg lock attempt to come up on the back or sweep, right? Just kind of like how you can, that would be on the exit strategy of leg locks failing, you know, salvaging the position by going to the back or coming up, just coming up for your sweep when the leg lock fails. And then in terms of an entrance strategy when using leg locks, you know, you could be guard passing and use the guard pass to blend into a leg lock entanglement or vice versa. You could be faking like you're attacking for the leg entanglement, but really blending it up with the passing, using it, making the the two strategies coexist. So if you are a really, if you have mean leg locks and you're really, you know, slick with your leg locks, but you find that opponents slip out and, and then you're, you know, you have to start all, all from square one again, consider how you can blend certain scenarios with a leg lock failing and also with your passing. And that's how you're going to, I think the where you can really add leg locks seamlessly into your game. That's where you're going to get those, uh, where, where it's not, you're not going to really telegraph the fact that you go for a lot of leg locks or whatever. You have entrances and exits out of failed leg lock attempts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Awesome discussion. And there's three things in there that I'd like to unpack here that I think are worth maybe expanding on a little bit more. One of them, you brought up how a lot of the time as people get older, they move away from these very dynamic games and focus more on slower, more methodical jujitsu. And a part of that is, of course, getting older, right? <laughs> you, you don't want to move as much and risk injury and tire yourself out if you can avoid it. But a big part of that is efficiency. When you're younger, you don't really think about this. You know, you're more concerned about, hey, did I get the job done? And if I've got to do 10 backflips around my opponent to get what I want. All I care about is that I got what I want. But as you get older, you realize there's more to victory than just victory. There's also the cost involved and what you had to do to get there. And there's also risk management. And this becomes very, very critical as you get to a high level because against a good opponent, you can't afford to make a mistake. I mean, I know if I'm sparring with a white belt, for example, I can make mistakes left and right. As long as I'm just (laughs) more experienced than them, I'll probably be fine. But against someone who's really experienced, you make a single mistake and they'll make you pay for it. And I really think that one of the core principles behind jujitsu is economy of motion. It's not just about trying to get what you want, but it's about doing so with the least effort possible. Because the thing is, when you're moving around, you're creating openings for your opponent So I think that's part of why as people get older and more experienced, they tend to move towards a slower pressure based game because it's less risky for you, both in terms of injury, but also in terms of leaving openings. And if you can achieve the same thing with less effort, then that's almost always a better thing to do. It's funny. I got a narrated patron request from a black belt that we have who's a patron of ours from Michigan. 
And he sent me this match of him at a tournament sparring with another black belt. And I absolutely loved it. It's what I call old bastard jujitsu, where it's <laughs> two old experienced guys. And their whole game plan is I'm not going to give you an inch and I'm going to break you with pressure. And to the inexperienced eye, this is brutal to watch because it looks like two guys doing nothing. But to someone who's experienced, it's kind of beautiful to watch because it's all about setting up the perfect defense and economy of motion. And it's very slow and very, very conservative. But as soon as someone's able to extract a lever, then bam, bad things happen to the other guy. So it's kind of like watching two cats fight where things are very, very slow And then all of a sudden there's this big explosion of movement. And I think that's a good principle to have with jujitsu. And it ties into this discussion because if you're always just going for single lever attacks and you're not really worried about the other lever, then what's going to happen is the guy is going to start rolling and spinning. And yeah, you might be able to roll with him or spin with him and still get the submission. But why allow that? Right. Why allow your opponent to move if you could just as easily control the far lever as well? And then they can't do that. Right. Less movement is usually better when you're on the attack because movement creates escape opportunities. A few other things that I wanted to point out, you brought up a good example regarding wind conditions, which is that you got to consider the rule set because there may be a time when these Hail Mary attacks actually are a better idea, right? Like you said, if you're down on points and you need a win or similarly, if you're under a rule set where submission attempts are scored more highly, then it might be worth trying these attacks just to rack up those points or to game the system. But all other things being equal, The principle of jujitsu is that we prefer position over submission. So again, though, you want to consider the win conditions. And the last thing I want to bring up, you brought up this example of how you can switch between strategies. And that's really important when you're going for two levers. If I'm controlling two levers, then if things go south with one of those levers, I can switch to the other one. It's harder to do that if I'm focusing all my effort on one lever. So some examples of that, I mean, there's that old school armbar thing where when you're sitting on top of someone, you try armbarring one arm and if it fails, you switch around and you go for the other arm. You can do similar things with ankle locks where you're trying to get the ankle lock on one leg. And if the guy puts on the boot and starts to escape, then you switch and attack the other leg. But doing that generally requires double lever control where you're attacking both the near and the far limb. If you're trying to do that strategy when you're totally focused on a single lever, hard to do. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny how styles can contrast so much, especially like not just different players, but different weight classes. For me, it was different stages in my journey, basically from white belt. And I'm sure it wasn't fun to roll with white or blue belt, but white belt all the way till mid brown, I basically was movement based. You know, I'd watch guys like Meow Brothers, Mendez Brothers, Marcelo Garcia, like these guys are all very, I mean, they use, they do use their attributes a lot. They're flexible. They're very quick. They try and use speed and they try and use these big dynamic movements and and barambolos and game plans to to get ahead of their opponent and, you know, outmaneuver them and beat them to a position almost like they're racing them. And now my game, ever since I started watching Gordon, I'm like, well, why don't I just slow things down? Because, you know, the way he shows how to actually immobilize an opponent, specifically, a lot of my pinning has improved by watching Gordon's stuff and Danaher's stuff for that matter. You know, the game looks a lot slower and it is a lot slower. And 
honestly, for competition, I think it's it's actually more effective than unless you're like a Barambolo ace, you know, you're in the gym drilling Barambolos for hours a day and you're one of the best in the world. Then if you're not that guy, then it's maybe not the best strategy for you. And for me, that's what I found is I'm actually most effective when I can get into top pins. So it's funny now that I'm, you know, over a year into my black belt, my game has changed so much. Now I'm actually kind of regressing in terms of, uh, you know, how the sport has evolved. I'm moving backwards and I'm trying to think of more simple approaches, more simple attacks that don't require the same amount of exertion and just instead focus on negating movement on, uh, on behalf of your partner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's not to say that these dynamic movement based approaches don't work. They totally work as demonstrated, but the thing is if you can do something and succeed, but it requires a lot of movement or you could succeed and use less movement, it's usually better to use less movement. First of all, because of injury reduction, but also because it creates less opportunities for your opponent to use space to escape. Now, there's one situation where single lever attacks are really, really useful, and that is when you're fighting a boulder. So if you're fighting someone who just is shelled up and they just won't give you anything, and this can happen in a lot of situations where you're on top of someone or even if you're on the bottom and they're in your closed guard and they're just not giving you anything, usually the best strategy is to try to use all of your power on one lever to free it and then use that to start to move the rest of their body. So that's one particular example where that single lever approach is useful, which is if your opponent is overly defensive and you just can't get your offense off because they're not giving you anything, the best approach is to put all of your power behind one lever. So examples would be like if I'm on the bottom and someone's in my guard, probably what I want to do if they're just totally shelled up is focus on using all of my power on an arm drag to extract their arm or on trying to attack their head. Things like that will work very, very well, especially if someone is all shelled up. And similarly, if someone is on the bottom and I'm mounted on them and they're not giving me anything, what works very well for me is to use all of my power to try to force an Americana. Probably not going to get it, but it's going to force their arm to separate from the rest of their body, and that's going to force them to take action. And then I can exploit that motion to do what I want to do. So that's a really, really good idea when your opponent is being excessively defensive is to switch to a single lever strategy so that you can pull a lever free. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not to say that inversions and barambolos and things like that don't work. They certainly do. It's just that these are usually game plans that are seen at the lower weight classes and they don't negate movement. They actually allow for lots of movement. There's going to be inversions going left, right, and center. Again, I was inspired by like Mendez bros and Gianni Grippo and uh, Meow bros watching them just like Barambolo all over the place. It was not so much about how can you immobilize your partner but or sorry, your opponent, but how can you, you know, rally against their movements and kind of outsmart them and just have the sequences to be able to continue to invert until you get to the back or whatever. And then you watch Gordon and it's like, it's literally the most basic butterfly guard game ever. It's just really, really well put together. Like the mechanics are perfect and the strategy is perfect, but he totally, if he, he doesn't invert, if he doesn't have to, he doesn't, he does, there's no wasted movements. Everything he does is like meant to negate movement. Whereas other people in the team, he's kind of the only one that really has that style if you watch Ethan and even Oliver and and uh, Nikki and Gary, I mean, especially Gary, 
these guys are like flying around all over the place. And, uh, and a lot of the time looking, you know, they're very different styles. Oliver inverts a lot and specifically almost exclusively hunts the legs. Nikki is a lot like a smaller Gordon, but he does use, I think more movement. Uh, and Gary is just like, he's just a gunslinger. He'll, he'll just go anywhere and it's super exciting to watch. So it it is interesting to think about the different contrasting styles, but I almost guarantee you, you know, if you're a blue belt listening to this, your game will not be the same within five years or 10 years or even one year. It's going to change, you know, it's going to depend on injuries, body type, size, you know, um, the type of jujitsu you're studying at that current moment. For me, I've gone through literally dozens of phases throughout my journey. And right now where I'm at, it's like, I want to prevent my opponent from moving as much as possible because that limits the possibility for me getting hurt. And also it limits the amount of energy I need to exert. Which becomes very important as you get older. That's something that I think a lot of people don't understand is energy conservation when you get close to your 40s starts to become a priority. I mean, I remember when I was in my 20s and I was starting out in jujitsu and I used to be so proud because I would go to the gym 14 times a week. I thought I was just this total badass. But like now... I would never even consider training that much. Energy becomes something that you start to manage very carefully as you get older. Part of it, of course, is just nature. But another part of it is just strategy, right? Why spend energy that you don't have to spend? Mm -hmm. If you can achieve the same or greater results with less resources, wouldn't you want to do that? Yeah, exactly. And I I realized, you know, after, like, I love crab ride. I love barambolos, all that stuff. But I mean, there's just, there's so many guys in competition that are just specialists at that, that I really don't want to get into these Barambolo battles with them where that's all I do. And because I'm getting older, you know, I'm definitely feeling it on my body. I'm feeling the inversions more. I'm feeling, uh, you know, if I get stacked, that really sucks. I just, I think it's better now to funnel my game towards top pins and, I remember looking at old school jujitsu when I was like a purple belt and being like, oh, it's so boring. Like, I, you know, they're not going upside down. They're not doing like the, the current stuff. I want the new stuff. I want the modern stuff. But then <laughs> as I'm getting older, I realize like, oh, there's a pl- there's a place for that. And, and it's true when you watch Masters Worlds versus regular adult worlds, you'll notice a difference in the pace, a difference in the approach. I've gone through a bunch of different injuries. And because uh because I'm no longer in my 20s, it's like, yeah, well, I'm not as uh, tenacious as I was in my 20s because I really didn't give a fuck back then. If you get hurt, then you have a lot more to lose now, right? Yeah. Now now that I literally make money from this, I do have a lot more to lose. And because <laughs> <Yeah>. I've <laughs> good luck teaching if you can't move. Exactly. And oddly enough, you actually can still teach. It's just I, I want to be able to train as well. And I want to be able to give my guys that training. But, uh, you know, when you're younger, if you if you tweak something, it's fine within like a week. You know, even if it's a dramatic injury, it heals. You heal relatively fast. But when you get older, you realize like, hey, I'm not healing as fast as I was. Or, the you know, the injuries are starting to add up now. And injuries that I had maybe a decade ago, now they're starting to feel sore in the morning when I wake up. And now I have to, I'm constantly finding new things that I have to do like physio exercises for to try and keep my my alignment and my balance as best as I can between my, you know, different parts of my body especially all the wear and tear over the years. So it's like, it's better to just get to these simple positions where I can literally just pin you down and control you. And a big part, again, just echoing this whole conversation, a big part about control is finding multiple levers. And that way you can gain the rotational control you need to use a variety of different attacks, right? And especially something like leg locks, where 
Uh, there's a lot of guys getting good at leg locks nowadays. It's important to know how can you keep these positions as long as you can and then separate and dig heel hooks as as efficiently as you can. And a lot of that has to do with how you're controlling the secondary leg. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, that was a pretty comprehensive discussion, Matt. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we wrap this up? I kind of want to tell a story about my knee, actually, that happened. That's kind of interesting. I love stories. Yeah, this is a weird one. I uh, So I put out a, a few weeks ago. It actually happened three weeks ago today. So three weeks ago, I, I injured my knee again, the one that I had surgery on, right? I was just inverting underneath Kiss of the Dragon and I got to a crab ride and I was rolling with a guy who's maybe like 20, 30 pounds bigger than me. And uh, he was on my hooks and I was getting ready to take the back. And then just my leg got over compressed as I was trying to create like an extension with my knee. And then I felt something inside my knee just like tweak. I didn't feel a pop or anything. It just I could feel it. And it was it sort of felt uh, like it wasn't opening all the way. And it was pain at the end of the extension. And it was this whole thing. I like God, I think I've torn my meniscus again. And I do have a Baker cyst behind my knee uh, from years of having cartilage damage and, you know, working on my feet in kitchens and whatnot. So there's a cyst full of liquid that will fill behind my knee if there's damage to the knee. This is pretty common, actually, if you have cartilage damage or osteoporosis or any kind of damage to the meniscus. So it kind of looks like a golf ball behind the side of my knee there. And on Tuesday, I, you know, I'd rested up a few weeks and I uh, started doing some light sparring from the back and I felt really good. And then, you know, I was sparring from the back and then again, my knee just like sort of tweaked. I was like, fuck, like I, I really can't be rolling right now. Something's going on here. So, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to take some more weeks off. So I just took some time off. And then I think it was on Thursday, I was on the Airdyne bike, just watching my guys roll, just coaching from the side, hitting the Airdyne bike, doing some intervals, trying to get a sweat. And I'm going pretty hard. I can, I can pedal pretty hard without, without hurting my knee. But keep in mind, every time I sit down and come up, or every time I do like a forward roll and I come up, when my knee goes from a, from compression to extension, I can feel this like mass behind my knee. It's almost like my hamstring is so tight that it's not letting me extend my knee fully without some degree of discomfort. Not really painful, but just annoying and, and it feels swollen in my leg. So I'm, I'm going on the Airdyne bike and it's literally my last interval and I'm going real hard. And then my fucking foot slipped off the pedal as I was kicking really hard. And I felt like a like an elastic band went like pop inside my knee. It was it wasn't I don't I can't really remember if it was a pop, but it was just like my leg straightened really hard as I was kicking. I thought I hyperextended it. I was like, what the fuck? I, and then I check it for damage. I'm like, God, what have I done here? And uh, dude, it like like my Baker cyst like popped popped into like a better position. And now it's like there's no pain at all when I extend my knee. And the the swelling has gone down significantly. So I think what's happened is when I injured my knee, the Baker's cyst shifted to the side and filled up with fluid. And it must it must be trapped between like two muscle groups or two tendons or something because they say they can't remove a Baker's cyst because it doesn't contain a cell membrane like a normal cyst does. So it kind of just it's not like a sack you can remove. It kind of just exists. So I think what happened is like the sack kind of got pushed through either two muscle groups or two tendons filled up with fluid and was extremely hard. Hence why it had like a golf ball shape. And then when I kicked my leg strong, when my foot fell off the pedal, 
it like snapped it back into place. And now it's, it's basically gone. It's still there behind my knee, but it doesn't look like a golf ball. It's more just like a, like a soft dispersed pillow behind my knee. And it's like barely noticeable fucking weirdest thing ever. And I'd love to know if like any of you listeners have Baker cysts and sort of what you do for them and sort of the issues that they've caused you. This sounds like when your TV isn't working, so you hit it and then it starts working again. <laughs> or you, or the, the Super Nintendo car- cartridge <laughs> you doesn't work, so you blow in it. <laughs> I'm not sure that actually did anything, but I think it's something that everyone went through is like, we assumed that it would work. That is really weird though about your knee. Yeah, man, it, it is weird. And I, I still think that I did like, uh, three weeks ago, I think that the, that, that incident did cause like some damage to the meniscus on the outside, but you know, I'm pretty optimistic now because the way it's feeling right now is like pretty great. Like I went swimming with my family today. We, you know, you have to you have to like rent a swim time or whatever now because of the whole COVID thing. So we rented a swim time. We went swimming like a few days after I injured my knee and man, I couldn't even like kick in the water. Like moving my knee like that was real sore. It just didn't feel good. And I was kind of limping and it, man, it sucked. But like I was in there today, I was doing, I was fully treading water, kicking hard, no pain, you know? So I I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. Maybe a lot of what's been going on with my knee is because there's this giant sack of liquid in there. And if it gets pushed into the corner too far due to overcompression, it kind of goes into a position that disrupts the balance of the knee. Right. And then from there, it's like really hard for me to extend my knee and whatnot. But now it feels like fucking amazing. So I'm wondering, I've already made an appointment for next week to talk about getting it drained. And I don't even know if I need to do that anymore because the problem kind of solved itself when it kind of sunk into place. Like I'm looking at my knee right now and where there was the golf ball before it's completely flat. Now it is the weirdest thing ever. That is bizarre. Yeah. I was thinking about also sticking just a bunch of steroids in it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, normally questions are asked of us, but this time, if one of you has an answer to Matt's question, that would actually be really fascinating to know. Yeah. Matt, that's quite the story. Cause I know, yeah, I know dude. Cause I know that meniscus is, it's a real common injury in athletes in general, but like for what we do, I know it's, it happens to a lot of us, but, and I know that Baker's cysts usually happen because uh, they're, they're generally benign and usually they happen because there's some sort of abnormality or dysfunction within the knee. Generally it's cartilage. And so I'm wondering how many of us out there have those Baker's cysts and, you know, do they ever move out of place? Do they ever shift? When I've spoken to my doctor about it, I've spoken to my physio about it, and neither of them have heard of something like this. So I'm just like, what the hell? This is really weird. So, I mean, I guess I just got to be careful how I compress my knee, but I'm going to, I'm going to just keep doing physio and probably won't be rolling for a few more weeks and hopefully I'll have good news. Huh. Yeah. Well, if anyone has any inside details on exactly how this can be, do let us know. Yeah. Knees, man. Cool, Matt. Any closing thoughts before we tie this one up? (sighs) Two knees is better than one. (laughs) (laughs) Double lever control. Yeah. All right. Well, let's quickly recap the mental models we talked about here today. The whole thesis of this episode is single versus double lever control. Generally speaking, single lever control allows you to gain more power, whereas double lever control allows you to gain more control. And regardless of what you're doing, you need to constantly be asking yourself, which of these do I need more of right now? Do I need more power or do I need more control? We talked about rotational control. 
One of the benefits of double lever control is it prevents your opponent from rotating, which is how a lot of very dynamic escapes tend to occur. We talked about position over submission. The downside to focusing extensively on single lever control is you might wind up in a situation where you're diving for submissions, whereas with double lever control, it affords you a lot of opportunities to keep control of your opponent, even if the submission itself is not viable. We talked about double trouble, the concept that if you want to truly attack one limb, you often are best immobilizing the opposite limb as well. This is an example of double lever control. We talked about economy of motion, the concept that all things being equal, you should prefer the solution that requires less effort and creates less motion on your part. We talked about win conditions, understanding the rules of the game so that you can maximize your winning opportunities. There are situations where focusing on submission attempts might be preferable to control. And we talked about masking your intentions. One of the benefits of controlling two levers is it makes it more confusing to your opponent as to which one you're going to attack. And if the attack on one lever fails, you can switch to the other. So Matt, I know you already asked your question, but we do have a question from a listener. Cool. Let's hear it. Our listener says, Thank you for your excellent podcast. This conceptual approach should be the standard foundation for jujitsu instruction. Techniques are a necessary component, but not the right context for deep, efficient learning. Would jujitsu pedagogy benefit from some kind of accrediting body? Not an affiliation, but an independent body that objectively assesses quality of instruction against some kind of reasonable standard. So what this listener is asking is, Would jiu-jitsu be well-served to have a governing body that basically checks and credentials professors to make sure that they're good enough to do the job? Similar to how in a professional institution like accounting or for lawyers, there are accrediting bodies that make sure that there's a certain bar that participants need to hit. And that's a really interesting question because... Jiu-Jitsu is so focused on your affiliation and your competition track record that we don't really have a good way to actually objectively assess who are the good teachers. It's an interesting idea, and I know that the reason that the idea was probably developed is because this person cares about the standards of jiu-jitsu and, you know, wants high standards in jiu-jitsu, the highest standards possible. But at the end of the day, you know, if you give a governing body this type of power, then it always ends up with them using it to make money. It's a, it's just the free market in play. Like, I don't think there's any way that you can have a governing body do this and not do it to make money. And and I think the, the way that the IBJJF tries to legitimize their black belt rankings, you know, you, if you're going to be ranked as a... If you want to get degrees on your, on your black belt, you know, you have to do like their refs course and all this stuff. And it's like, while I think that's important, I don't necessarily think that that is necessary um, because not everybody competes. And I don't think that the IBJJF posing as a governing body really has the authority to decide who is a black belt and who's not. Personally, for me, I'm not a huge fan of it unless we were to make jujitsu an Olympic sport like international judo federation you know if you're if you're going to make it a governing body then fine i mean i guess i guess that makes sense but if we're just going to hire some private company to do this then i'm not really for the idea yeah i think the stakes need to be a lot higher before something like that would make sense if you're talking about lawyers or accountants 
I understand why this would be beneficial. Or even if jujitsu just blew up and became a huge thing, then I could maybe see it. But jujitsu is still very niche in the grand scheme of things. And although I agree that a lot of instructors are either not very good or aren't really equipped with the best educational techniques, at the end of the day, adding an extra governing body on top of that, given the size of the art right now, I don't know if it really makes sense. And additionally, the art is still evolving a lot. So if you've got some governing body that comes in and starts setting all of these rules, are those rules still going to make sense years from now? And will this governing body keep up? So I think at the end of the day, the stakes are pretty low when it comes to jujitsu instruction and the need for a body to accredit instructors is maybe not there. But my hope is that over the years, as concept-based teaching methodologies become more popular, you'll see this natural evolution of better instructors. And I do think that is happening. I think that the quality of instruction now is much better than it used to be. And so a big part of that might just be more free sharing of information, more competitive pressure with all of these instructors who do have these techniques and do have this educational skill. I think that kind of stuff is going to create competitive pressure where other gyms are going to need to adapt. And that's really probably the preferred way to get these ideas out there is to have some examples like Danaher's team, like Bernanke's team, where people look at these and they realize whoa, that team is having a lot of success with that. If we want to be competitive, we should learn from them. I think that's a better way to increase the quality across the board versus trying to mandate it, Mm -hmm. given just how small and how rapidly evolving this art is. Yeah, I I tend to agree that there is a lot of instructors out there that probably aren't teaching the best jujitsu. And I also agree that there's a lot of instructors out there who are starting to really get on the conceptual approach to jujitsu. But, you know, just like you said, like in 10 years, you know, we don't know where this sport's going to go. We don't know what's going to be effective. We don't know what should be added, what should be taken away. Who should, who should have the authority to make these kinds of decisions, right? Like for me, I think that posture structure base is a crucial part to teaching jujitsu. But I bet a ton of really high level world class guys would disagree with me. I bet they have different approaches. Right. And I think that keeping the, you know, the personal identity of your lineage and your school and the way that your academy looks at jujitsu is kind of a cool part of our sport and kind of what sets it apart. I think that if we tried to have a one sort of a collectivized system that teaches everyone how to do jujitsu, then we might lose some of the individual individuality behind it. Um, we might feel like we are forced to learn something in a way when maybe we maybe there's some people who think that there's a better way to learn it. From no point of view do I think that I want a governing body telling me if I'm legit or not. I think it's up to me personally to make myself as good as I can and to learn from everyone. I'm big on the conceptual approach. I am not by any means, my approach is not a hundred percent conceptual. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I don't think that that is the best way to learn jujitsu. You still need to learn sequences. You still need to learn techniques individually. You still need to learn in all these different ways. And concepts is just one of them. And alignment is just one of them. Be it, I think that alignment kind of is the most steadfast rule when it comes to describing proper positioning. But that being said, I think that there are many ways to learn jujitsu 
And I'm not really comfortable having an organization tell me the best way to learn jujitsu because it is, it's, uh, it's subjective. It's not, it's kind of left up for opinion. So at the end of the day, I think it's better that, you know, it's up to the professor and those who, those who dedicate their lives to passing on jujitsu to find the best way to teach it. It's uh, not up to some organization because then you might get some kind of, who knows, maybe 10 years of that and your sport kind of becomes more bland and it, it will keep evolving yet the curriculum will need to be updated every few years. Like when does it end? You know? So I don't know. I don't know who I would feel comfortable making those decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing too is I would not feel comfortable mandating our approach and saying everyone must follow it because we're not even sure if our approach is the best approach, right? Just because we talk about this stuff, that doesn't mean this is the only way to learn or even that it is the best way. As we talked about earlier in the show, our thinking has evolved a lot. You know, the way that I used to approach single versus double lever control has evolved a lot just since I started this podcast to the point where I would not prescribe the same advice now that I did back then. So that's something to bear in mind too, is that it, I think it's a little bit presumptuous to say that your approach is the best and it needs to be mandated to everyone. Mm -hmm. It's really up to the professor to come up with what they think is the best way to learn jujitsu, the best style for jujitsu. And I think honestly, these instructors and gym owners, at least this is how I look at it, need to have multiple styles Uh, And be able to teach multiple styles because they will get different types of athletes coming through their schools over the years. And you can't just be teaching one style, in my opinion. You kind of have to be well-rounded and have something for everyone and let people choose their own path. So like you said, who are we to say that our style or our, our methodology is the best way. You know, I think it's almost a pretentious thing to say that. And I wouldn't feel comfortable designing a curriculum and saying, well, if you don't learn this, then you're not a real black belt. It's just it's just too much control for me. I'm not a fan of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, that was a really, really fantastic conversation. As always, if you got value out of this, you can support us on Patreon. That's the single most valuable thing you can do to support the show. We also make it worth your while. There's a lot of awesome content on there that we provide to our patrons. We have exclusive strategy courses. We have exclusive podcasts. You get access to the show early, and you also get the ability to join our Discord community where, as we talked about earlier, we do narrated roles. So if you submit your footage to us, if you're rolling, we're happy to critique it to give you a concept-based breakdown. The people who have done that so far just really love that approach. And frankly, it's a lot of fun for us too. So if you're interested, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. You can do that at patreon.com slash models. Again, that's patreon.com slash models. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate the support. And beyond that, if you want to learn more about these systems and these concepts that we talk about, You can go to bjjmentalmodels.com. That's where we've got an online database of all of the mental models we talk about here on the show. There's also a contact form that you can use to contact us or send us any questions or feedback. You can also go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash store, which is where you can pick up gi patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash join to get on our mailing list, where we send out more content on a weekly basis. And you can follow us on Facebook and on Instagram. Well, that was a good one, Matt. This is a topic that I'm really happy we covered. It's something that I really wanted to get into for a while. Anything else you want to say before we tie this up? I don't, but I hope you guys have good training. Stay safe out there and uh, COVID free. And uh, yeah, if you're not training, I hope you get back soon. Otherwise, keep studying, 
keep doing exercises, work on what you can, and we'll see you next time. There weren't any cats that interrupted this episode. Yeah, I I learned how to use the mute button. They were here. (laughs) Trust me. All right. Take care, guys. Bye.